Hello. Welcome to the first episode of The Anxiety Lab. My name is Sagar. I'm so glad you're here. Little background on me. I've been a stand-up comedian in New York City for about 10 years, and recently I've gotten very interested in my anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety. I'm curious where it comes from. I want to know what is happening in my mind. And sometimes this exploration translates well to stand-up comedy, but often it's alienating. Some would say all of my jokes are alienating. I, I would take exception to that. But increasingly, I've been wanting to dig into this stuff without the burden of getting a laugh or approval. So that's why I'm here. And I thank you for being here with me. I've been interested in mindfulness a long time. I even did a mindfulness teacher training a couple years ago. And I remain very fascinated by this idea that there's a lot of delusion happening in my mind that lies beneath my suffering. And the more I pay attention, the more I can see it. And that's what I mean by mindfulness, just the simple act of paying attention. What I love about mindfulness and Buddhist wisdom is you're only supposed to accept a teaching to the extent that it resonates with your own experience. Don't blindly accept anything. That's why I'm calling it the lab. Observe it, see it for yourself. All of this is sounding a little bit formal, I realize, and I think I'm okay with that. This is the first episode. I should lay down some basics. So uh, yeah, I'm fine. Look at that. That is me working through some anxiety in real time. The song you heard in the beginning was by Brooklyn-based Irish folk singer Niall Connolly, the great Niall Connolly. He was gracious enough to let me use it. Please check him out. He's got a rich catalog of deeply heartfelt stuff. Niall, if you're listening, thank you. And that brings us to episode one. I am launching this podcast with just one episode. I have read a lot of blogs and advice columns. If you're launching a podcast, you got to start with three episodes. People got to get hooked. They got to binge. I don't want you to binge. This is, for me, reflective stuff. Uh, I want you to take your time with it. Hopefully it spurs some thought on your end. As I said, laboratory, see for yourself. That's what I'm trying to do here. And that said, this first episode is with, I think, my first official meditation teacher, Kimberly Brown, uh, the wise and generous Kimberly Brown. We recorded this one a few months back, actually, when we were more firmly in the shakeup and the brutality of the pandemic. And I wanted specifically to start with this one because as we move forward, and, and hopefully the vaccine will continue to roll out uh, and things will get better, I, I, as we move forward, I don't want to forget all of the lessons that the pandemic has to teach us about the fundamental, groundless nature of reality, about how things are always in transition. Usually we just don't notice. Because going forward, I really want to set this intention to maintain fluidity around my understanding of myself, around my understanding of what life is and where everything is going. Because I'm, I'm very, I think one of the things I've realized is, is just how rigid my understanding is and my expectations are. And, and I, yeah, it, it's something to think about. It's something to look at. You can find out more about Kim at meditationwithheart.com. She also has a book out, Steady, Calm, and Brave. It's got 25 very simple, very accessible practices, also very short uh, if you don't like reading long meditation books or long meditation instructions. Um, and, and just a testament to how generous Kim is. She... I think the book was launching around when we recorded, but she didn't once bring up the book. She didn't ask me beforehand to plug it or do anything. I had to bring it up. Uh, she just showed up to have the conversation. So I don't have much more to say other than if you have any comments, feedback, uh, attacks on me, feel free to email theanxietylab at gmail.com. That's theanxietylab at gmail.com. Uh, or just email me something that you're anxious about. Um, I'd love to hear from you in any context. Sometimes merely the act of telling someone else something you're anxious about uh, releases things just a little bit. So that's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, Kim. Hello, Sagar. Why don't we start with a check-in? How, how is everything for you these days? You know, Sagar, it is both wonderful and scary. Wonderful mm. and scary. Wonderful in the sense that, you know, I feel very lucky. My husband and I are safe. We uh, can work from home. We have a, you know, very pleasant life. Knock wood, everything in that way is, is really well. Um, but at the same time, it's very scary. Um, not knowing what's going to happen next and, 
both personally and with the world. It's um, such a shaky time. Yeah, indeed. It's funny how these days when we're saying how we're doing and when we talk about how we're doing well, it almost feels like this very reasoned argument Mm -hmm. why we should be well. It's not this automatic, yeah, I'm great. Things are great. Uh, We have to kind of argue for the sake of things are good. And it's, it's an argument worth making. As you said, there are reasons to feel grateful. Yes. And it's also, it's necessary. It's necessary for our own well-being and for anybody who is like you and I, Sagar, know lots of people who are really engaged in the world and want to help change it and want to make a more equitable place. Mm. And the only way you can keep that kind of work up is if you can see both what you have and what you don't, that you can see the problems and the special wonderfulness. Because if not, you get very discouraged. And the Dalai Lama talks a lot about that, that you'll just totally burn out if you don't recognize all of, you know, the, what you have to be grateful for and all of the struggles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not about lying to yourself that things are great. It's about reflecting on what's actually happening in your life. Yeah. And right now I'm in an apartment that is, I'm able to pay rent. I'm able to sit here and feel relatively secure and that's happening. I don't have to convince myself that things are great. I could just pay attention. I, I wonder though, sometimes I get, I mean, I do this all the time. I am very gross and self-centered often. And I'll walk by someone who's disabled or someone who's in a wheelchair and I'll just feel a little bit of gratitude that, you know, luckily I have my legs for now. And yeah, I wonder, and as I've gotten older, there is that, see, now I'm feeling self-conscious that my first response should just be compassion for that person. But I would say selfishly, I often just feel gratitude. And I think there's room for both. Yes. I mean, I think that your um, gratitude is a recognition of your compassion. It comes out of compassion. You can see, wow, this is something that's so hard. Someone struggles to live in this way, whatever that way might be with a disability, with poverty. Um, And by recognizing that and having that sense of compassion for their suffering, you also realize, wow, I'm very fortunate that I am not in that circumstance. And then you said something really wise, Sagar. You said, for now, for now, you are recognizing the complete impermanence and change of life that everybody's going to grow old, get sick and die. Yeah. And honestly, like I've known that, you know, we, we've known that intellectually almost as long as we've been adults or possibly even earlier. I mean, I don't know. But really, it wasn't until this last, you know, shitstorm of a six-month period that I really feel that. That because I think before I'd walk by people who are even just this is just an example of how irrational the mind is. I will walk by someone who's 90 and just have this gut feeling of, oh, I'm better than him. Look at me. And of course, I know that I will, if I'm lucky, one day be 90. But the feeling when I'm walking by that person is that I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, and it, it's not just out of the fact that I'm younger now. It, I just feel like a little more invincible. I guess that's it. This feeling of invincibility that I felt has, has been break, broken down a little bit. And it's scary. One might call that vulnerability is what you're feeling now. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, five years ago, you could ask me if I'm susceptible to illness, death, misfortune. I would say, of course I am. But I don't think I really felt that I was. I just kind of assumed I'm one of the chosen people. Sure. And now I'm, it, that feeling isn't there as much. Well, we've seen with recent circumstances that we're all vulnerable. We're vulnerable to a pandemic. We are Mm -hmm. vulnerable in a way in our country that I haven't seen in my lifetime. You know, Um, certain um, things we took for granted, like federal agencies, right? right? Like that the CDC would work and that, you know, the post office would deliver. Those are things that I always thought, you know, I would. Why would that change in my lifetime? Um, 
so we're seeing a lot of things breaking down or possibly breaking down and things that we relied upon, we really can't rely upon or we're not so sure about. Um, and it is, it's leaving everybody with a sense of vulnerability. Now, what do you do with the vulnerability is the question. Certain people right now are becoming, they're so afraid of this vulnerability, they're becoming aggressive and violent. Mm. Right? That's what we're seeing there. That's fear. And then others with the vulnerability are just feeling sad and despairing. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is a great segue into today's passage, uh, which which is that feeling of, in, in the past, it, it has been so much easier for us to distract ourselves from these feelings because we can just take refuge in the things that are dependable, but there's less that's dependable now. I think before I could, you know, all right, I'm going to go walk in Prospect Park and I'm going to uh, have a, a great kind of four-hour walk and I can have that to look forward to. And now that same experience is completely different. There's there's essentially nowhere to go. And then when I'm outside, I could, I could kind of, I used to dream about how awesome it would be inside, but now inside is also overcrowded with my girlfriend and I uh, sharing space, having to work together. Um, I always had a vacation to look forward to. I always had this or that to look forward to. And listen, I, I've been a goddamn meditator for 10 years now, and I always pride myself on someone who's happy due to the present. Not, I'm, I'm not just looking for, I'm not just hanging my happiness on some future event yet. I, I think the last couple months have revealed that I'm at least partially full of shit. I, I do often hang my hat on future events, you know? And what does that look like for you? Well, I think what you said about being happy due to the present is what many of us thought. And I, I've seen this in myself and a lot of meditators. Like, oh, we're, you know, we're very balanced. I have lots of equanimity. I'm mindful as long as circumstances are going my way. Right. But that last little per parenthetical, that's a blind spot for us. It's a blind spot. Has been. And that also speaks to how lucky we are that we have been most sure. many of us living in a very stable society and mm. knock wood. Most of us, you know, many of us have had health and if, even if we didn't, we had someone to help with that. So the the point of meditation is to have what you said earlier to me. It's to have a steady mind, no matter what the circumstances. Yeah, so let, let's get into this passage I selected. This is from uh, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Life is a good teacher and a good friend. Things are always in transition if we could only realize it. Nothing ever sums itself up the way that we like to dream about. The off-center, in-between state is an ideal situation, a situation in which we don't get caught and we can open our hearts and minds beyond limit. It's a very tender, non-aggressive, open-ended state of affairs. To stay with that shakiness, to stay with a broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feeling of hopelessness and wanting to get revenge, that is the path of true awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack for relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic, that is the spiritual path. Well, Pema Children is an amazing teacher. Mm. For those of you who don't know her, she's, gosh, Pema's probably in her 80s, I think. And she has been um, a nun in the Tibetan tradition, I think, since she was 35 or 40. I know she was married. She had a couple kids. And then she gave it all up to become a um, teacher. And part of what Pema, I think what makes her such a powerful teacher is she is very able to say to everybody, yes, you are having struggle and suffering and it's okay. Like that's part of being a human. And in this passage um, where she says um, things are always in transition, if we, we could only realize it, she's talking to what we were just saying. Exactly. Exactly what we were just saying. If only we could realize it. Because even though everything did seem fine to many of us for a long time, everything's changing all the time. All of us, right? right? So um, being able to be with all of that change all the time 
and that change might be, um, what does she say? She says, stay with a broken heart, rumbling stomach, feeling of hopelessness. Um, to just be with it all, that's how people wake up. That's what you said, happy due to the present. Happy due to the present is to be with your broken heart, your rumbling stomach, feeling of hopelessness, not trying to push it away, not trying to get rid of it. And there you are, mm. content and open to what's arising in your human experience. Well, well, she goes a step further also, and she not only is it oftentimes typical, maybe calming advice would be like, get through it, pain is part of life, but she's not saying that at all. She's taking it to this place where, no, this is the ideal situation. I guess that's the part where when I read it, I don't fully, I can't fully tap into that immediately. How, how can this be an ideal situation? Well, I mean, there are two ways I would talk about that. So the off-center in-between state is an ideal situation. We're always in the off-center in-between state. Human life is constantly moving, never changing. In the Tibetan right. tradition, it said that human life is the place to wake up, that you are very lucky. It's a great fortune to be born as a human being because we have the ideal circumstances to wake up. Right. If we are born as a god or these other realms, we wouldn't have it. So what she's saying here is everything in our life, everything. Life is a good teacher. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, the shakiness, the broken heart, the success, the joy. The part that jumps out to me was nothing ever sums itself up the way that we like to dream about. and Because I'm always dreaming. I'm always running numbers on my life, if I do this career, if I do that career, if I stay a comedian, if I quit and have a simple life somewhere. And I'm always kind of chewing on these scenarios in a way that if I could just think about it long enough, it will reveal itself to be right. And, and in turn, I'll be safe or it will be wrong and I'll be miserable. And, and that goes with anything, whether it's deciding, I mean, pre-pandemic, where to go on vacation. One of these trips is is going to save me. That's kind of the feeling within it when I look forward to it. And so Can I it's ask never you that saved, clean. Saved from what? I guess suffering. It'll save me from, but I, but I think when I have that feeling, I don't even know that I'm currently suffering. I just, it just shows up as this craving, you know, like right now I'm, I'm dreaming of, having a really nice apartment in Park Slope. Right now I have a very small, not terrible apartment in Park Slope. So again, I could have gratitude that I'm at least geographically in a place I love. Yeah. But I fantasize about having lots of money and one of these, you know, apartments with a gym. And when I really hold that fantasy, it's it's their central AC and I'm sitting there and I've had a long I've had a good workout. And the feeling of this image is that like I'm good. Like it's a thorough feeling of good. So then I guess when I'm at the mercy of this, I'll, I'll try to go and maybe make a lot of money to try to have my life resemble that image. But lately I've been more and more suspicious of that image. You know, I don't think I'll ever be as good the way that I feel when I'm having that fantasy. Well, it's interesting because you just described the first noble truth. For listeners who don't know much about Buddhism, the foundational teaching is that this guy, the Buddha, was trying to understand what it meant to be human. And he studied and practiced for a long time. And what he discovered was there were these four truths. The first truth is that all humans have suffering. Now, the word in his, I'm not sure in his language because he didn't have a written language, but it was written down in Pali. And the word is dukkha. D-U-K-K-H-A, we translate that as suffering. Mm -hmm. But it also means, as you know, Sagar, it means dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. And it's said that everybody has it, rich or poor, happy, sad, um, healthy, not healthy, that there's this subtle, you just described it so beautifully, this subtle sense, this thought, this feeling that you'll be able to get somewhere where it'll be, you'll be good. Right. It's almost like I need it. My mind needs to keep spinning up these uh, scenarios so that I could feel safe. And 
I get yeah, evidence of that is these days my inability to sometimes sit still. I'll be it's hard to just, you know, put my phone down when I'm done watching TV. I immediately want to reach for something, uh, whether it's food or more stimulation. And yeah, that's it's it's funny how I'll put something down and sit still and I'll immediately need to do something. And that's that's probably evidence that I'm suffering. Yes. That, because that I, 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 there's something about. uncomfortable happening. And so often we read, I mean, it's such a big word, suffering. And mm-hmm. we read it so often, especially if you're reading about mindfulness, that be, it begins to become a concept outside of ourselves. And it anytime we're reading something over and over again, it's going to get intellectualized. But what is the actual feeling of suffering? I mean, suffering is a word, but what's the feeling? And that's when I can recognize that, oh, this discomfort is suffering to find specifically the ways that I'm suffering and to really pay attention to it outside of, you know, all of the ways I'm just being fed it in these books. Yes, yes. And to actually experience it. And you can, what happens is for people that are fortunate who are not having the suffering of suffering, as it said in the early texts, like, you know, that are struggling with pain and disaster. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of us that have maybe small as suffering, but it's still always there. Sometimes the only way we recognize it is through seeing it's like the symptoms, like you just described, you know, the story about the apartment, the, you know, watching a movie and then needing to move immediately to the internet or however it goes for you. And that's kind of how you start to see, oh, there's some underlying dissatisfaction. I'm having trouble just experiencing myself in this moment. Right. And I think it's all about becoming aware of what's happening in your mind and then, I guess, befriending it. And I mean, I'd love to speak more about befriending it. Um, But before we do that, I'm, I'm curious if we could just, if you could speak to this idea that some people might look at it as a self-centered act Mm. that if I look at all the people that are actually suffering out there, especially during this crisis, obviously uh, based on the news, racial injustice, people sick, dying. I don't have to repeat what you've already heard a thousand times at this point, but this idea that, well, okay, well, my suffering is, is irrelevant in the face of what's happening at large. Yeah. Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways, but the first is to say that all suffering is relevant, right? All suffering is relevant. Yours, mine, someone, you know, in a terrible disaster, all suffering is relevant. Uh, The second is to say that without acknowledging, recognizing, being with one's own struggles and suffering, until you can do that, you cannot really develop compassion. You can develop pity. And a Mm. lot of people have that, like, oh, you poor person, I'm going to come and help you, blah, 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 I'm going to save you. Um, But for to actually have compassion, compassion to say, wow, you're a human, I'm a human, I recognize what that might feel like, right? I'm not you, but I know that experience. And that begins by offering it to yourself, by staying with yourself. And when you can do this for yourself, then you can start to do it with others. The third thing I want to touch on is to have um, effective action in the world. One has to cultivate wisdom, and with wisdom Mm. comes compassion. And wisdom tells you, well, what actions can I take? A lot of students I know think that sitting and worrying – about the world is an effective action when it is completely useless and it's harmful to yourself. So it's something to think about too. What is effective action? Yeah, because we talk about the benefits of getting to know our suffering as you just articulated beautifully. Uh, But we could also approach this, I wonder, through just illustrating what happens when we're not in touch with our suffering. We're, we're in such a, I guess, worse position to look out for the needs of others. You know, if I'm suffering and I haven't yet befriended it, if I'm just in this place of needing the next hit of pleasure, and sometimes pleasure comes in the form of, I need this person to admit they're right. I need this other person to suffer 
that that for me is a really big narrative throughout my life is uh kind of wanting like wanting others to suffer and it's it's a little bit unconscious but sometimes when i hear about how a friend's doing and they say they're wonderful a part of me is like man i wish they weren't so wonderful and i, I and upon reflection i think that's just because i'm suffering i don't know it and I'm not able to handle it, it would make me feel better if I wasn't alone in this. And so I'm a little bit at the mercy of my own ignorance here. And and I'm not able to be present to other people. Yes. And it's said that the most that our suffering comes out of greed and hatred and ignorance, as you've just said. Greed could manifest as neediness, as desire. Um you know, hatred is aversion and anger, you know, enraged really. And ignorance can be boredom or delusion as well, right? Hmm. But all three of those things cause a lot of suffering. And you, and when put in those terms, I think you can start to see, you can see politically that our president, A, he's dangerous. I agree with everybody who says that. B, he's suffering. Right. You can see that he is filled with greed and hatred and deep mm. ignorance. So we know that that person is is suffering. And were they not suffering, perhaps their actions would be different. Hmm. I, I mean, I was going back to this idea of the off, the off center, unnameable mm. reality. You know, I was in the park this morning and I was walking around, and there were moments where I was seeing kind of the ugly side of the park during a pandemic. Every garbage can was overflowing. It was hard to, you know, when I wear a mask, it fogs up my glasses. And then the narrative started in my head of like, oh, I can't live here. This is awful. Is this, this is wrong. And then there were times when the space opened up and I was able to kind of look down a couple open fields and really see the textures of the leaves and the trees and I appreciated how well designed the park was. And I was like, oh, wait, but maybe it's good. Maybe it's right for me to be here. And and so that, again, speaks to this quality of I'm always trying to file it away into good and bad. I am going to be, am I safe here or am I not? Am I happy here or am I not? And and then I just, you know, remembered I, I was going to talk about this teaching today and and thought about, reflected on, yeah, just kind of let all of it in. I guess I spent a lot of time trying to reconcile my narratives. Every time, if I've decided New York City's awful and I have a, a nice time here, I'll all of a sudden it'll cause me to panic because then my narrative is wrong. Yes, and as you're describing, you know, your walk and this polarization, like, oh, this is awful. Okay, wait, I'm going to look over here. It's not so awful. You know, from what Pema is in saying here is, well, when you see the garbage and it's awful, that's the point where you're practicing mindfulness, right? And, mm-hmm. oh, disgust is arising in me. Anger is arising in me. Disappointment is ar- Whatever it is, that's what you notice. So it's not about the garbage or whatever it is you're seeing or the beauty. It's about well, what is arising in me. Right. Yeah. If I could just drop this mechanism that's that's trying to turn every experience into certainty, you know, Beautifully and said. into a working framework of something that's going to enable me to think my way to, to happiness. And what we're talking about also is like being able to be with our experience and also being able to um, to have what's called equanimity, an understanding of what you can control and what you can't. Sharon Salzberg mm. will often say, the world is not mine to control. Now, many people really believe the world is theirs to control, mm-hmm. right? This should be happening. This should not be happening. And it's got to go that way. But there's nothing in our experience that tells us that's true, right? So we, and, and that starts even, Sagar, with small things like our feelings and our thoughts, they arise and we're like, oh, I shouldn't have that thought. I shouldn't have that feeling. Could, could we say that equanimity is a process of negation? It's not like we're, you know, when I'm angry, I'm not telling myself to not feel angry. Rather, I am paying attention to all of the images and thoughts associated with that anger 
And I think as I pay attention, I will naturally develop more space for this anger when I'm able to sit with kind of the raw experience of it without the story, without the images. Yes, yes. And what happens too, what we find with all, everything's changing. Your anger is going to go away. Your joy is going to go away. So how can you be with it and not try to, like you were saying earlier, trying to like fix it, trying to make it stay, make this moment of happiness stay forever, make this, build this anger up. You know, when I get angry, lots of, I have to really feed it, right? You're so wrong. You always do that. But if I sit and feel my feelings and what's really going on, that anger starts to lessen. Mm-hmm. And it changes just like everything else is constantly changing, like Pam is talking about. Things are always in transition. Right. Right. Yeah, I spend a lot of time talking to people in my head. And I'm, I'm learning how... I always think everyone does it to the degree that I do, and I'm learning that it's not quite as relatable as I think it is. And um, But I think people do it a little bit. And I'm, I'm playing out arguments. I think it's a byproduct of shame. I'm just whatever insult someone threw at me three years ago can hit me like a stack of bricks on a random Wednesday as I'm walking, and then I'll just start going at it again. Maybe um, a couple years ago, a friend... A couple, I was playing tennis with some friends a couple of years ago, and they just robbed me in broad daylight of a line call. My serve was clearly in, and they called it out, and they don't even know tennis, and they're trying to explain to me the rules. And it's odd. I mean, this happened six years ago, and yet I'll still just start mouthing off to them. And if you saw me on the street, you'd just see someone <laughs> kind of fidgeting and muttering to himself, and it, it's weird. And And I think the reason I do it is if I could just – Obviously, their treatment of me that day results in an experience of, I I just feel like shit. And then I'm, because I guess it's uncomfortable to think that they would just abuse, like it feels like a violation. And it's uncomfortable to think that I'm someone who maybe deserved that violation. So instead, I'm just going to come up with this argument that's going to really show them up. And so I'm now in this dream scenario where I tell them both off. And in doing so, I have kind of shored up my feelings of shame because now they're the idiots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's kind of this, what you're, that's what I guess I thought those fuck it. I can't believe it. I'm getting mad all over again. Um, <laughs> no, but I guess when I stay with that feeling without getting into the story, then that feeling starts to reveal that, Hey, that, I'm a person right now breathing air. I'm walking on the sidewalk and this memory is just a mirage of thoughts and images that are, that's happening in my head. There's no destruction of self the way that I feel that there is, you know, and this is a process of observation. I'm not really thinking all of this, but that's kind of what happens, right? Yes. And you have to acknowledge your suffering. Whatever hurt was there, something is arising in that moment, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that, yes, right now I'm perfectly safe. I'm walking down the street. That happened six years ago. Here's reality. And what's arising in me is hurt feelings, sadness, a sense of shame, whatever it is, whatever yours is. But without acknowledging that emotion, then you're kind of just trying to push it all under the rug. That's going to keep coming up. Right. Yeah. So not just feeling the hurt, feeling the hurt or whatever it is, you know, naming the hurt. You can compassionately talk to the hurt. I see you. Teek Nhat Hanh, the Zen teacher, he says things like, I see you anger and I'm not going to leave you. I see you sadness. Right. I'm not going to leave you, you know, whatever it is. Because the felt, because in the moment, the feeling is though, if I give way to this feeling, there's this danger that I might lose myself or that I am as unworthy as I fear I am. And I think if you get up, it's like that classic analogy with the boogeyman. The closer you look, the less scary he becomes. So sometimes I'll just force, I guess, right action. Like I remember one day I was going off on some friend in my head, some old argument, and and then I remembered it was his birthday. And then I just texted him. No part of me wanted to text him happy birthday. But I knew that my anger was short-lived, just intellectually, just based on previous anger. 
what do you think of that? Like just kind of hacking it, even though you're not in the mood? I think that's great too. I mean, there are many ways, um, you know, to deal with all of our feelings, our emotions, our memories, our thoughts. One way is to interrupt them, right? To interrupt right. them, which is what you chose to do. You said, stop, I'm not going down that path. I might have these feelings. I'm still going to perform this action of benefit, kindness to this person. Um, and part, you know, something that, that Pema said in here, she said, um, where is it? We can open our hearts and minds beyond limit. She's talking about the immeasurables, the limitless qualities of compassion, of joy, of wisdom, of equanimity that we all have. And what you did was the development of of love, of metta, right? I right. Halt these aggressive, aversive thoughts, and I'm going to instead act kindly and actually be generous and give a gift in a way to this person. Yeah. Cause the, the flight of that anger, it's, it's a limited experience of that person. And I'm opening up into, uh, I guess a more thorough experience of who this person is. This is a human being like me who is wanting of love the same way that I am. The ways that let's say even he caused me harm. I've caused people harm. I don't. I would not like to be defined by those moments. Yes. Yes, you can see that so clearly. Bullies are people that have been bullied, whether by right. family or children, whatever. Like that's just an obvious example. But yes, um, so learning to re-relate to yourself, you're also learning to relate to others. I mean, I teach a lot of self-compassion classes, but the truth is, compassion is compassion. It doesn't need that word self. Right. You have real compassion. You have it for yourself and for everybody you encounter. Because the self is just a thought that we're having on top of something that's a more felt experience. That's something being compassion, right? Yes. And because we are having this experience, whether whatever we call it, you know, there's the Sagar experience and a Kim experience. And when I can, as you just said, it's relational. It's how you relate to yourself. Mm. And when I relate to what's arising in me with kindness, with openness, with gentleness, then I can relate to what arises in me with others, with kindness, with gentleness, with openness. Um, and with discernment, because sometimes people will say, oh, well, you'll just let anybody do anything they want. But that's not what we're talking about. Some, if someone is harmful, we can stop them from harming. We can acknowledge the pain and suffering they cause others. And we treat them with kindness and patience. And that might mean locking them up, but we don't have to hate them. Sagar, one of the reasons the country is crazy right now, society is crazy right now, is we are living in a time of the greatest delusion maybe ever because of all the stories, because we have access constantly to fantasies and stories and delusions. And and I believe, you know, the creation of the Internet was like was something for which we needed to have a lot of preparation in order to engage mm. with appropriately. And we we haven't. So we're now, everybody's caught in a huge delusion. And what happens then? Well, we're not dealing with reality. Yeah, because more than ever, I think, obviously, social media comes to mind with regards to presentation. And within the message of presentation, someone's fancy picture somewhere where it looks like they're successful. Again, what I was saying earlier about winners and losers, we all kind of are holding ourselves in that way of like, okay, well, this person's clearly a winner. I'm a piece of shit because I don't have a great house that looks like that or a career or whatever. And and so we build this idea of we we build this idea in our heads of of deliverance that's available to us if only we made the right moves. Because it's cl- look clearly other people are having it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we and then we chase it. And then we chase it. And certainly, um, and in a time when when 
many of us are thought of as consumers and, and the media and many of the messages we're getting is it's trying to get us to consume. The way that's done is to force us to compare, compare ourselves to others, um, and also to create a lot of desire, right? So, you know, I mean, there are things, I have a good friend who's such a good shopper on the internet, and she'll send me things that I never knew existed, but I really want it. And now I, you know, I really got to have this thing, you know? So there's actually these physical things, but then there's ideas, there's ways that we think the, I mean, fake news, Sagar, look at that. Hmm. What a delusion is that? And it's on the right and the left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the reasons I, I cherish learning from you and attending your various trainings and workshops over the years is the emphasis on really finding that ability to be with your own experience with compassion. And I guess that ties into the last line of this passage, sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic. This is the spiritual path. Those two go together, right? The experience of having compassion finding compassion for yourself. And, and that last, that, that's what it means to me. And that's why I thought of you for this passage. That's what it means. Yes. Yeah. You can't do any of this without compassion. Compassion by definition is being able to um, be with struggle, suffering, pain, your own and others, and also have a movement toward helping to alleviate it. Right. So it's really impossible to be with Somebody who's sick, I mean, I'm going to give an example because I think we've all had this. You've been with someone and they are sick, tired, suffering, depressed, whatever it is. And you, your feeling inside of you is either I have to get out of here or I, it's, this is very hard for me and you start to give advice. Oh, well, have you right. seen this doctor? Have you done this? Have we called this? You know, because you're running away from it. Because you're running away from you're it. You're trying to stop it, or you're trying to deny you're it. Trying to stop it and trying to deny it. Compassion allows us to go. Wow, you're in a lot of pain, and I'm here for you. Right? I support you, and you know, of course, there are things. If you can take away other pain, you would. But there are many, many times when, when just being with that person, and we've all benefited from, from benefited from this where there's been a person for us to just listen, to just put their hand on our hand. Say, wow, I I know you're going through it. Wow, that's really hard. Uh, Yeah, I feel like if we could get closer to someone's pain and kind of be a witness to it and be there for them, even if we're not, as you said, offering any type of way out or overt relief, we're just witnessing it, then that, I think leads to that person being able to not see that pain as being this terrible thing that they need to run away from. It's, it's just a site. If we are approaching someone suffering with this aversion, then that's all that does is make us more prone to keep avoiding it. Yes. And thereby the boogeyman gets more and more powerful. Yes. And for real, um, you know, societal ills like, Income, income inequality, for example, to mm-hmm. be able to just be with that, to say, wow, okay, yes, it is really happening. I have benefited from this. It's really happening. This is very painful. Then it allows a certain understanding of it. And through that understanding, you know, change and benefit. But the shutting down, the, the not being able to have compassion, it, 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 it makes things, um, it makes it us unable to understand them and have wisdom with them. Right. I mean, right. personal it, suffering of like, you know, a friend who's sick or like I said, you, you just injustice, you know, to not be able to open your heart and go, wow, I, that is so painful. Right. Because then someone else, they might cut themselves off from their own pain as if it's bad. Again, going back to bad and good. It's so powerful. Then we might 
feel ourselves to be bad if we're feeling certain ways rather than, well, no, let's look closer. What is the actual experience? Let's accept it. Yeah, Sagar, everybody's struggling so much. It is such an anxious and scary time. And I would like everyone, whoever's listening, just to be nice to yourself. And I don't mean, you know, buy yourself things. I mean, take a few minutes and put your hand on your heart. Take a couple breaths. Just do it. It may sound stupid. Very quick. It might sound stupid, but it really works. Um, And one quick and easy practice you can do is just to take a moment of stillness, put your phone down, and say to yourself, may I be safe? May I be healthy? May I be open to the changes in life? That's it. Do that a few times a day. It's reassuring. Take some breaths. And you might offer it to friends and family, too. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be open to the changes in life. Um, it's what we're all struggling with. Yeah. Right and that stuff has an effect. It's like you don't want to go to the gym, but you go to the gym and you end up feeling better. Not to put this in such a crude concept as a workout, but an intellectual like me will be like, well, I, I'm not going to wish myself to be, there's no guarantee I'm going to be healthy, but it's, it's not about that. It's about cultivating a kindness to yourself. It's not about, yeah, it's not yes, about brainwashing yourself the, to believe that everything's going to work out. Not at all. And what the neuroscientists tell us is it starts to rewire old habits. So our habits may be very negative, like this sucks, I'm mm. terrible, everything's a disaster. And you say these sorts of phrases, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be open to the changes in life. And it starts to rewire your thoughts in a way in which you're a little less harsh, a little more open, right? But it's not magic. It doesn't mean you won't get sick. It just means that you have an intention toward yourself of kindness, of wisdom. Yeah. And it's. I think it's where we reject ourselves and reject parts of our experience. That's where we continue the cycle of, of suffering. And so this is a way to, again, short circuit that routine. It's not about adding this artificial layer. It's about removing some of the things that are happening in our mind constantly that are just assumptions and false beliefs about how unworthy we are that we run away from. And this just kind of softens us towards everything. It really does, Sagar. And and you use the word rejection. We're just closing, but that that's it. There's nothing that we're rejecting in within ourselves, right? There's nothing we're saying mm. no to. This is happening. Yes, it is. If you could prevent something from happening in the future, then of course do that. But what's arising right now is arising, and to be able to say yes to it. My husband um, studied uh, philosophy he, at the New School. He was in their PhD program for a long time, taught philosophy. And when I first met him, he told me about... Uh, the idea of amor fate. Amor fate is something Nietzsche wrote about, and it means to love your fate. So it means the recognition that everything that's happened to you, you're saying yes to, because it happened. You're not rejecting anything. It's it's done. It happened, and that's the same as what's arising. What's arising is arising. What's happening is happening. To say yes to all of it. To not reject. That's to live in a, a way of wisdom and compassion for yourself and for everybody. You know? Right. It's like the people, you know, when yeah. Trump was elected, a lot of my students came and they were like, this cannot be happening. He's not my president. Okay. Now, I agree. He's a terrible president. And he is our president. It is happening. Mm. Okay. You've got mm-hmm. to allow it. You've got to say yes to it. I don't know if we are supposed to get political. So oh, no. Yeah, that's that. at this point, it's not political. Right. It's just a statement. It's basic humanity more than it is a political statement. Uh, yeah, and it all starts with attention. Just pay it. The more attention you pay to your mind, the more you're, you're going to encounter experiences of rejection. It doesn't have to be this philosophical, intimidating kind of endeavor. Cool. Thank you so much, Kim. That was... Uh, Wonderful. Thank you, Sagar. This is so beautiful. Very exciting. And there it is, the first episode of the Anxiety Lab. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Kim. Meditationwithheart.com for more on her. 
we also talked about loving kindness or meta meditation, M-E-T-T-A. If you want to look that up, Sharon Salzberg is a great resource for that stuff. She's got some guided meditations on YouTube. Uh, hope the audio sounded okay. I'm doing my best to tweak things in this COVID era of uh, remote connection. And as I said, the anxiety lab at gmail.com. I'd love to hear any feedback, thoughts, hate mail, whatever. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, S-A-G-A-R-B-O-T. Feel free to get in touch there. And, uh, oh, I wanted to land on this. So the song you heard in the beginning is called Invincible by Niall Connolly. Uh, You'll hear it right now. (laughs) And we actually, we didn't plan this, but we landed on invincibility as a theme, I guess, a couple minutes into this episode, uh, talking about this notion of, of carrying this feeling of invincibility when in fact it's not true and ultimately that that's okay. So I just wanted to note that. What else can I say? Uh, please subscribe if you liked it. Rate and review me on iTunes. It would really help me out and uh, it would help me to get this thing going. If you didn't like it, uh, thanks for giving it a shot and I wish you the best. That is something I'm able to do now because I am feeling better about myself. Although, I don't know. Yeah, I still wish you the best. So, yeah, I look forward to continuing this conversation. I got a few episodes already recorded that I'm really excited about. And, uh, yeah, until then, until next week, I hope you take care. Goodbye.